friends, welcome to episode 11 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. I'm your host, Sally Adams, and I've taught people how to produce original work for the stage for over 30 years. If you go to sallypal.com, you'll find my blog as well as my podcast. You'll also find Sally Pal on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thanks to everyone who's been sharing the blog and the podcast. Today's episode is an interview with Florida choreographer and dance teacher Nicole Perry. Nicole holds degrees in dance and music and is currently pursuing a PhD in spirituality and the arts. Nicole has choreographed for Miami Children's Theater, Center City Opera Theater, and was the resident choreographer with Hedgerow Theater in Philadelphia for two seasons before becoming a full-time dance teacher in Florida. Learn more about Nicole at her website, NicolePerry.org, where you can also learn about audition coaching, and that's N-I-C-O-L-E-P-E-R-R-Y dot org. Be sure to listen until the end for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started. Every day I gotta stop for a minute Think about how good my life is with you in it Every day I wanna stop and think about you Thank you so much for being a guest on Sally Pal. You have a, a Bachelor of Arts in Dance, a music degree in piano. You're pursuing a PhD in theology and the arts. It's amazing to me. You have a resume that includes Miami Children's Theater, Center City Opera, Hedgerow, but you also do all these other things. You have this huge theater resume as well, and I'm gonna go out on a limb here and assume that you sing as well. So you're a triple threat, really, because my podcast is all about doing new work, and you do a lot of new work, especially with students, and you choreograph a lot of new pieces. I wanted to ask about one in particular that's a fairly recent one, I think, the Global Water Dances. Yeah, yeah, and actually, I just sent you the email that you asked for with links and photos and stuff, and I put that one in there. Oh, great. Can you tell me a little bit about choreographing that work and what was involved in it? That's a fascinating topic, of course. Global Water Dances is actually really cool because it is a global event. It's not like something that I came up with and was like, that'd be fun. Uh, it's actually, <laughs> you know, it's, and it's created by um, LIMS, which is a Laban organization. And they want to raise awareness about water issues around the world. So they hold this event. They create a piece that they want you to perform with whoever you are performing with so that ideally, you know, everywhere around the world on this day, people are doing the same dance. And then they also encourage you to create a dance specific to your area and your water issues. Right. Their global water event this year was June 24th. And I was teaching a summer camp at St. Andrews where I teach full-time during the year. Um, and our camp ended on June 23rd. So I emailed Banya and said, could I do this? And could we perform on the 23rd instead of the 24th? And it's a little different because it's part of this camp. And so we're not going to go outside. And because that's what they would like you to do is perform, you know, near or with the water. And I said, you know, it's really going to be on the stage. So it's going to be on a showcase. But I really want to do this with my students. I think it would be really powerful for them and their families. And they gave me permission to do that. Wonderful. I took part of their dance. The whole global dance was actually 
very long. It was like nine minutes long. And I was like, well, we don't really have time for that in our little camp showcase, <laughs> as lovely as it would be. So I took part of their dance and taught it to the girls. And we videoed it. And we used it um, for the audience to view during sort of like an intermission break while the girls were changing costumes and doing things like that. The little water section of the showcase started with that, and they had this great press release that we just used as our script to introduce it. The director of the camp, Joanna Gustinelli, she delivered the script that talked about some of the water issues. I love how the arts are addressing something that's very prescient. It seems to me that's something the arts does better than almost anybody. Yeah, and I think it was a really interesting thing for our students. These were, for the most part, rising fifth and sixth graders. So I'm looking at late elementary, middle school, and we had a couple of girls who were in high school. But for the most part, this was a younger set. So it was really cool to just share with them the fact that, oh, dance isn't just for competition, although that's a valid thing to do, and dance isn't just, hey, look at me, look at what I learned. Dance can really be communicative of issues. Right. And this was a modern piece, is that right? It was very much a modern piece. We live in South Florida where we are surrounded by water, and when I talked to the girls about it, I said, for me, what's really interesting is we had had, like, the rainiest June, and I had actually wanted to take the girls to, we have a pond on campus and that's what our dance is sort of going to reference i wanted to Mm -hmm. take them to the pond and do some sort of site-specific explorations and work about the water there and what we find and i wanted to take them to the pool and actually put them in the pool and really talk about movement quality in water and we did some lists in our piece and i originally wanted to practice them in the pool because just like in dirty dancing that is the safest easiest place to learn lifts in the water (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we just it was an incredibly incredibly rainy June it was actually so rainy that parking lots were flooded roads were flooded and that's because the water table is just so high here so you know that's something that's really interesting to me living in South Florida is being surrounded by all this water that was happening while you were addressing some of the water issues yeah and we were talking about that and then we're talking about the fact that all of these other people in the world don't have access to water or the water that they have is unsafe. Like the UN estimates that 884 million people lack access to safe drinking water. That number is so huge. It's truly incomprehensible to think about how many people that is. It is stunning, especially considering there are places that are dealing with flooding and mudslides and the rising water tables and all of the things that go with that. Yeah, and we're looking at climate change and the fact that Miami is going to be underwater by the end of the century. <laughs> like, oh, you know, that's, that's an hour away from where my kids are. Like, that's just, yeah, that's kind of crazy. My older girls, my middle school, high school girls, they really got that and they took that on and embraced it as what they were going to focus their portion of the piece about. Um, but then my younger girls, yeah, that's a little bit much for them, but they were really interested in pollution because water is a big part of their life. You know, many of them have boats and they go out in the ocean or they snorkel. And that was actually what they were really interested in. So the piece started the day that I decided to work on it. I shared some of my thoughts about water. I shared some of the information from Global Water Dances. And I had the girls write about what water meant to them in their life. And some of them wrote 
cute little stories. Some of them wrote sort of free association of like all the ways that they used water. And then one girl, Lily, who's going into fifth grade, wrote this wonderful poem about water. And we actually ended up using her poem to introduce the piece. How wonderful. I had her record it and we used that. After they wrote about water, I had them go through and find three to five words in their writing that they felt like were their words, really sort of express what they wanted to say, and then mm-hmm. to develop a little movement phrase around that themselves that they you know, each came up with some movement that expressed their story. So then they read whatever they wrote to the class, and then they performed their movement phrase. And not only did they perform it, they had to teach it to us. We all learned everybody's movement phrases. And then I took little pieces of their movement to create the whole piece. So the choreography is 90% mine, and the rest of it is one movement from everybody's little phrase that I incorporated. You're not just training dancers. It sounds like you're training creators, choreographers. Yeah, that's something that I'm really, really passionate about. You know, I studied with um, Bill Evans. Oh, wow. Bill Evans Dance Company. You know, I actually just got back from his teacher conference. Something that he is really instilling in his his teachers is um, the power of student voice and student mm. choice in work. You know, students really learn better when they can internalize it in their way and it stays with them longer. It's much more resonant to them. Plus, we're giving them the ability to say, you know, dance isn't just a physical activity. It isn't just an entertainment factor. This is something that means something to me. Do you find when students participate in that way, that they're more engaged in the dance despite having a small portion of it? Oh, yeah, because they got so excited. I really tried to be very conscious about that, that something from everybody's piece, because that would have been like everybody's first nightmare, to be like, oh, my thing wasn't in there, you know? (laughs) Right, to be the one kid. Right, it would have been devastating. Everybody was represented and felt like they had ownership of the piece that would be terrible to ask them for their opinion and their thoughts on something and then ignore them but I think that's what <laughs> happens to kids a lot well one nobody asks them their thoughts on things like yeah. like water issues I mean who thinks about asking elementary school kids despite the fact that they'll be the ones most impacted by it yeah that's so true I mean I'm likely to not be on the planet by the time Florida's underwater but my kids my grandkids they're gonna be around I think because you're an artist, you recognize that the arts do have something to say. And I would love to see us globally get back to the world of looking at issues from an artistic perspective. Mm. You know, a lot of people say the arts are a mirror to society, but often I think when they're at their very best, they're leading the conversation. And I see you creating a generation of artists doing that. It just gives them a chance to be heard and to feel like they have something to offer, which is really, really important as they learn an art form. Like maybe, you know, they're not a ballerina, but then they go to modern dance and they feel like, oh, I have something to say about this and it's valued. Or maybe they are a ballerina and then they find out you can improv in ballet. People create ballet dances. It isn't just, you know put upon you. How old were you when you started to discover that you had a voice? I started dance really late. So I started when I was in middle school. I was like 12 or 13, which is late to start dance. Isn't that funny? I, I hear that and I think that's that's not late for any other art form. 
right? And, and in the modern dance world, that actually really isn't late. Like, I've found, especially going to these conferences with William, that, you know, a lot of modern dancers start, quote, unquote, late. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. dancers, not so much, but modern dancers do. But really, from the first moment that I was dancing, I wanted to create dances. It actually never even occurred to me that I couldn't create dances. That mm-hmm. was what I, I wanted to do. Did you ever feel like there was a moment when there was someone specific who heard your voice and said, okay, let's expand on that? I had a teacher... I did a couple of solos for competition, and I think I was a sophomore or junior in high school. She allowed me to contribute to my solo, which was awesome. And I don't remember, like, scoring super amazingly on it, but I remember being really excited about it because it was my work up there, not just her work. And I had also created some dances for, like, a church cantata kind of thing, but, like, I was creating the dances. And, you know, I taught other people. And I think I was probably 16 or 17 at that point. My church at that time was pretty artsy and was at least interested in exploring how that worked. And they gave me a format to do that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's a wonderful segue because I am interested in talking to you about what drew you to becoming a doctorate in spirituality and the arts. Yeah. Uh I found, you know, I had gotten away from the spiritual side of dance making and even the modern dance side for a while because I was doing so much musical theater and I was teaching ballet and on all of those things, sort of the story is rushed upon you for the most part. Like, right, your musical theater piece is about whatever the play is about and, you know, ballet <laughs> variations. Even the choreography, if you're teaching a variation, the choreography is going to come from an, an age-appropriate version of whatever ballet you're pulling from. And the steps are codified, even if I create my own dance. You know, so I had just gotten away from a lot of the modern dance. Because honestly, modern dance in the studio setting is not super popular. And it's not really understood. Did. You know, lots of studios say they offer modern, and it is not what an academic dancer would consider a modern class. Maybe it leans more toward jazz, I guess. You know, and there's lots of contemporary, which is kind of, you know, like a fusion of everything that's happening right now. And I think a lot of studios offer contemporary and think that they're offering the newest version of modern. Right. When <laughs> modern dance itself actually has this, you know, this history and this lineage. It depends on the school. You know, Graham Modern is very different than Horton Modern is very different yeah. than Evans Modern, but they all have a direct lineage to some modern movement pioneer. So that's what I consider modern dance, even though there are various schools, they all have a direct lineage to someone who said, I want to do something different than ballet. I want to do something that has meaning or not. I mean, in the case of the, you know, Judson Church avant-garde kind of group, you know, but even their lack of meaning was a meaning choice to them, you know? (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So modern dance, I feel like, is one of those things that's super just misunderstood and mislabeled so I was not doing a lot of that and I found myself just really missing that and really hungry for a dance that was communicative and that was meaningful and that was not just beautiful to watch but beautiful to truly experience you know that more was going on than just the visual layer of it and I found myself just really wanting that and then when I got sick 
and I wasn't dancing, I found myself coming back to my spiritual roots. I, I said, you know, my church had really given me a chance to do some of those dance things and feel like I was a creator in dance. And then I went to Eastern, which is a fairly liberal Baptist school. You know, social justice is a big, big thing at Eastern. And Shane Claiborne, who I just admire so much, runs a simple way. And he came out of Eastern and he does all this amazing work with social justice. And like he was just arrested for protesting the death penalty on the steps of the Supreme Court. And I'm just like, oh gosh, these are the, these are the people that I know. These are the people that that I come from. And so I had gotten away from the church. I had been married, I had gotten divorced, and had felt sort of the ostracizing of that Mm -hmm. choice. I had left the church, and then when I moved to Florida, I couldn't even really find a church that I liked. They didn't know any of my story, so they wouldn't necessarily have any judgment of my baggage. But I just couldn't find a place that I liked being and that I felt good being. So I had gotten away from that. But then when I got sick, I just found myself really wanting something spiritual and something grounded. I found Ocean Seminary, which is a very loose form of seminary because the focus is on spirituality. So there are tracks in Christianity, there are tracks in shamanism, like there are tracks in like every range of sort of spiritual experience. And I felt like, okay, this is something that I can figure out what is working, what I want, what speaks to me as a spiritual being because I do believe I am a spiritual being. I just don't necessarily need to be in a judgy church right now. Um, (laughs) Encountered really for the first time the feminist theology vein of Christian theology and was like, yeah. From the feminist theology, I found the body theology vein of that as a performer and particularly in theater and dance where not only do you have a body and you do everything through a body but you are really seen as your body in theater and dance like you get roles based on your body or don't get them based on your body your experience is really really mediated through what your body is capable of and looks like and it just became really fascinating to me of how does that affect me as a spiritual person many people are able to sit behind their desk and be like this is my head work and this is my body work and and then this is my spiritual life but what if we are really integrated and we're really trying to integrate and I do think every person has that opportunity but it's hard it's really hard our culture does not really allow for that or encourage it you know the body is still very much shamed and pigeonholed. I became very interested in that. And so it was originally an MFA. Their MFA program is Spirituality and the Arts. And I was the only dance person they've ever had in there. They've had writers, they've had musicians, so they've not had a dance person. So that was really interesting. And I thought I was going to do an MFA concert. But the level of research that I was doing, because I was asking these questions that didn't really have a good base of research yet, even anecdotal, particularly Mm -hmm. in Christian spot. Um, so, you know, my advisor said, I think we need to put you in a PhD program. Yeah, it's really taken a while, um, but I actually this summer wrote my prospectus and the first chapter, I think, of my dissertation. But what I'm really hoping to focus on over this next year is doing some phenomenological research with artists at various stages in their careers and also people who pursue dance or theater as a personally fulfilling hobby, like their job might be something else, but they're choosing to spend their extra time in in dance or theater. And I really want to look at 
you know, is there a difference on meaning making for artists who are involved in something, you know, like a modern dance where, you know, perhaps the message is a little bit more amorphous or you kind of create your own story or character versus, you know, both performing in uh, Sleeping Beauty, you know, where the story is a little more set or someone doing a play that has a clear message like you know the Laramie project where there's definitely a certain social lens on that versus you know a a British farce which is yeah just funny it's like strictly fun yeah yeah is there a difference on on the spiritual life or just just you know taking on a character and being part of sort of the other in that yeah. context, um, how does that resonate spiritually? And, you know, if you're doing, if you're playing the villain, how is that different than playing the hero? And does it, does that have an effect on your spiritual life? Or is it just a learning process of, or being involved with, you know, being seen? Being seen is a huge thing for people because especially in this digital age, we very often don't feel seen by the people we are with. So when you're on stage, do you... Do you feel seen or is it the other that's being seen or the other that's looking at you and then you feel ostracized instead of seen? I don't, I don't know. These are all the questions that I have. Where do you see yourself going post-doctorate? I love my, my middle school and high school kids, the opportunities that they've given me to be creative and to you know reach across curriculum has been really exciting. Yeah. At the same time, teaching college students is really intriguing because I do feel like you can have a little bit more of those art conversations and meeting conversations. What advice would you give to a student looking to move beyond where they are as an artist and what advice would you give to their parents? Take as many classes as you can in different styles and things that you don't think you like because hearing different teachers, getting different cues, getting a different perspective is going to just open you up creatively and if you're lucky enough to have a teacher who really does believe in improvisation and dancer's choice giving you moments to create like take every one of them take every one of them being able to take direction is huge in both dance and theater like if you're getting a correction apply it if the person next to you is getting a correction apply that one too you've had the same teacher for a considerable amount of time we get sort of just set in these things like this is the way that it's done but I think that's like the kiss of death in any creative endeavor this is the way we always do it well Oh That's no! Not very creative, is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you ever have... really open? We sell our kids short a lot. I think we underestimate what kids are taking in. Do you ever have conversations with parents where you feel like you guide them? My parents honestly have been incredibly supportive of both me and their students in pursuing things that are outside the box and challenging. And even the water dance that I did for the summer, my younger girls that start off the piece the girls that will be in fifth grade here in a couple of weeks. Many of them are like, this is my favorite piece. Certainly your parents recognize your passion for the subject and your love of the kids, and I, I think that doesn't go unnoticed. Hopefully, hopefully true. I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're so upbeat, and keep doing what you're doing because you're clearly making a difference in the world. Thank you so much. It's now time for concise advice from the interview. Ooh short version of the best tips from my guest. Get up.
Today, I have seven great bits of advice from the spectacular triple threat, Nicole Perry. Number seven, find ways to artistically express issues close to your heart. Number six, student voice is powerful. Use it. Number five, ask for collaborators' thoughts and take those thoughts into account when creating something together. Number four, Take as many dance classes as you can in as many styles as possible to inform your creativity. Number three, take every opportunity to improvise and create. Number two, some things work in practice that in theory seem as though they shouldn't, so apply all the direction you get, regardless of whether you agree with the director. And number one, just be really open. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Thanks to Nicole Perry for taking time out to talk about spirituality, dance, and life. Next week I won't be interviewing a guest. I'll be sharing some things I've learned as a director of new work. Let me know what issues come up for you as you prepare a piece for performance. Maybe we can come up with some solutions together. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sally and this is Sally Pal. The P-A-L in PAL stands for Performing Arts Lab. Be sure to check out my blog for articles and podcast episodes. It's sallypal.com. Also, keep sharing, and thank you so much. You guys have been awesome. Because of your sharing, we've had thousands of clicks and hundreds of downloads, and I cannot thank you enough. The number of downloads rises every day thanks to you. You can find the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you use a podcast platform that does not carry Sally Pal, let me know and I'll see if I can change that. Of course, you can always find the blog and the podcast on my website, sallypal.com. Look for my posts on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and LinkedIn. And if you like Sally Pal, find a like button and press it. Don't ask me where it is, just do it. And if you really like it, Share the podcast or the blog or both. A new podcast goes out every Monday evening. Now, I have just one bit of wisdom from George, my husband, the coolest guy on the planet. Hey, George, what's your wisdom for today? If you're going to be dumb, you've got to be tough. Well said, George. Well said. Excellent advice indeed. Remember, all the performances you've seen on stage once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, it's your turn. Thanks so much for listening. There's no advertising budget, just like and share buttons, and the all-powerful download. Sally Pal episodes are posted on Monday evenings, so spread the word. Remember to tune in next week for my solo show on directing original material. I want to help you learn to produce and direct original shows. It's what I do, and you can too.
sounded very fakey. kind of was, wasn't it? And, well, that just sounded terrible. <sighs> red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, <laughs> I think she's got it. A short version of the best tips from Mike. Let's try that one more time, and can we be a little less perky? I'm going to get this. I've got to stop writing these run-on sentences. This is crazy. George? What? Could you call Charlie? Charlie, come here, buddy. Let's do the whole thing again.